Okay, now we got a jam because as you know, we always got a lot to say, don't we? The Word of God is rich and full, and so here we go. <laughs> Let me do a quick survey to start. Um, love surveys, love interaction if you can't tell. This isn't just uh, me up here talking, but interaction. So I'm, I'm going to just need you to trust me for a second, okay? Can you trust me for a second? Uh, we're going to prove a point, but it's going to require you to be honest and sort of open about uh, some things in your past, and it's not to meant to expose you. It's not meant to have people looking around and saying, who's going to raise their hand? Uh, but you'll see if you just trust me when I do this survey, okay? So I'm going to ask a few questions, and if uh, it's affirmative for you, I just want you to raise your hand for just like 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, then feel free to drop it, okay? So here's the questions. This is an open and honest place, and so hopefully these don't um, seem scary to anybody. Here's the first question. How many of you did not grow up in a Christian home where your mom and your dad were talking to you constantly about who Jesus was, or at least on a frequent basis, did not grow up? Okay, next question. How many of you uh, grew up in a Christian home, but at some point in your life, a season in your life, uh, you realized that uh, your mom and your dad's faith, that wasn't your own faith, so you set out on a kind of discovery, and a part of your discovery meant wandering away from the church. Maybe you partied a little bit. Uh, maybe then eventually you came back around. Who is that part of your story? Okay. How many of you, your parents, are still happily married? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, parents... Um, either when you were young, got divorced, or got divorced since you left the house? How many of you? Raise your hand. Now, how many of you, your parents are still married, but you're not necessarily sure they're happy? Okay, <laughs> right, you're like, uh, is my mom and dad here? I can't answer, uh, answer honestly. Okay. How many of you have a master's level education or above? or are working towards a master's education or above. Okay, so obviously we're very degreed in this room. Lots, lots of degree. I didn't say smart, I just said degreed, okay? <laughs> just very degreed. Now how many of you in the past have struggled or been addicted with drugs or alcohol? There's no shame, the cross of Christ covers it all. How many of you have struggled with other addictions in your past? Raise your hand. How many of you have some sort of abuse in your past? How many of you were born in the American South? Anybody born in the American South? Got a couple. Raise them high and proud. High and proud. There we go. <laughs> How many of you were born in a different country? Any of you born in a different country? Yeah. Several people, more than you probably think in a room this size, born in another country. So look at this. All around us, here's the point, there's a great myth about Christianity, about the Christian faith, that there's a certain type of person who becomes a Christian. There's a certain type of person. Now the myth is that this uh, type of person, because of their circumstance and the way they were brought up and where they were brought up, that's why they've become a Christian. Now even in this very small sample size, and you can imagine if we were five times the size we are, even more hands would be going up for all sorts of uh, these different categories. And what you notice is that it's ridiculous. There's not one type of person that becomes a Christian. There are so many different stories. And so the idea that maybe the people that become Christians are those who grew up in Christian homes or those whose mom and dad were always talking about Jesus or those who went to church or were drugged to church every week or, or that it's only all the goody-two-shoes kids or it's all the kids... Uh, that, you know, never swore, and, and the first time that they, you know, hollered out, Dingford, or, or some word like that, they thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell, you know. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is not true. Or maybe you thought it's only Americans who are Christian. Just this survey, not true. Or maybe you thought it's only people from the South, and it's the really uneducated folks from the South. Those are the Christians. Not true. It is not true that, no, and that's what some people think. I'm serious. It's only the uneducated folks from the South who are Christians anymore, right? 
We blow that stereotype away because it's a myth. There's not one type of person who comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's just not true. This room proves it. And it's such good news. It's such good news. Because maybe you're here today and you just got clean or you just got sober. Or maybe you're here today and you've been following and going to church for a long, long time. Maybe you were abused when you grew up. Maybe you've struggled with drug and alcohol. Maybe your parents are divorced or your parents are together. Maybe you were born naturally skeptical. Maybe you grew up and in the womb you just believed everything was true about God. There are so many types of people, so many different edges to this thing, and lots of us might fall right in the middle, but it's so important to matter that no matter your backstory, one thing remains, and that's God saves. And we must not forget that. It's the truth above all truths that God saves, no matter what, no matter your story, no matter your background, and it should blow your mind every day when you hear of the way God saves. He simply saves. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 59.1. He said it this way, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or His ear dull that He cannot hear. Translation, God doesn't have T-Rex arms. He can save anybody. That's really good news. That'd be awkward. Okay. He never says, I really wish I could help you, but you're just not the right kind of person. My arms aren't long enough to reach you. I would grab you if I could, but sorry, out of my reach. That's not true. God rescues and He saves and He does it with all types of people, with all kinds of background, at different times in people's lives. It's amazing. (laughs) And we need to believe this. We need to believe this. It is true. Allow yourself to be convinced as you read the Word of God, as you hear story after story, that there's not one type of person that God saves, but He saves all types of people from all nations, all tongues, all tribes, all ethnicities. It's amazing. And the reason we must understand it is because if we aren't convinced of that truth, what we'll do in your head, and I've done this in my head, is we will convince ourselves that that friend or that family member is too far gone. They're dead to God. They're never coming back. And I've done it in my own life, and I repent of the fact that I do not believe that God is big enough, that His arms are too short to save. God, help me, convince me of this, that I don't give up on the people that You love. So this is the context when we find ourselves Jesus speaking with the Jewish people in Luke chapter 15. So let's see what he has to say about this notion. Now let's get some context. We always got to get context for these parables, otherwise we won't understand them. So look at Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. These are the religious elite. And they said this, This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. This is the context of which Jesus now rolls out into these parables. What are they saying? They were pissed off that Jesus, who was claiming to be a religious teacher, a rabbi, was hanging out with the outcasts and the sinners, the tax collectors. Those were the people that were hired by Rome to go around and collect tax money from the Jewish people, and they hated the tax collectors. And sinners, it's not just the normal category of, 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 that you're thinking. Sinners, uh, mainly what they're talking about here is the outcasts, those with leprosy, um, those with disabilities, the blind, the lame, the weak. Jesus was hanging out with them, and the idea was the Jews thought they were sinners, and it was their sin that had caused their deformity, their disability, their circumstance in life. It was their fault because they were sinners. And the religious elite hated that this man Jesus, whom so many were following and listening to his teaching, was eating with them, was touching them, was being seen in public with them, and they hated him for it. Now look at what happens next. 
So he, that's Jesus, verse 3, told them this parable. Singular. Now what's interesting, if you read on, he rips off three parables in a row. Now, maybe you didn't do so well in English class, but the singular means one thing is coming next. But what we must remember is that though there's three stories, this is really one overarching parable. And so he goes into detail and he talks about a man who, uh, a shepherd who lost a sheep and he left the 99 behind to go find the one sheep that had wandered away and he brings him back. And then it tells the story of a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one coin. It's the middle of the night and she burns up all of her oil searching, trying to find that one coin. And in both cases, when they find the one that was lost, they celebrate and they invite all their friends over and they throw a party because they lost, then they found, so they celebrate. They lost, then they found, then they celebrate. And then we come to the prodigal son. And like you know, anytime, and same thing's true with my sermon, so if you're going to sleep, sleep through the first half, wake up for the second half. Whatever you end with, that's the biggest point of all, okay? Whatever you end with. So we've got these two shorter parables, and then he ends with this big parable. And the third parable, which is known as the parable of the prodigal son, comes third and last, and it's telling the fullest, most profound truth about this concept of lost, found, celebrate. And so we come to this third story in this one giant parable, this triad of stories. And so it's safe to assume that Jesus wants us to focus right here, and we'll do that tonight as we focus on the parable of the prodigal son. Look at it. Verse 11 says this, and he, that's Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. Stop with me here. Two sons. And it's brought out right at the beginning of the parable. Why is this important? It's important because sometimes we look at the parable of, of the prodigal son and we just know about the one son. But right from the beginning, Jesus wants to remind us there's going to be another son coming into the story. Don't lose sight of him. And again, the same is true. Whatever comes last is probably the most important. And it's not the prodigal son that comes last in the story, but the older son. What does he want to tell us about this older son? Keep that in mind. Now, there's something to be taught definitely with the prodigal, but there's something even more profound that he wants for this particular audience, and I believe our audience right here, to tell us in the older son's story. So we'll get there. The older son, less famous, but just as important, if not more. Hmm. So, if you're taking notes, maybe write this down. Probably a better title for this parable is uh, not the prodigal son, but the compassionate father and his two lost sons. The compassionate father and his two lost sons. And I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert here because I think it's so important because I'll be jumping back from sort of the immediate context. This is not, partic this is not mainly a parable about family relations. It's mainly a parable about our relationship with God, okay? So I'm just going to, spoiler alert, the younger son is really the association with tax collectors and sinners. So think younger son is tax collectors, sinners, and the bunch. The older son is really the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite, folks like me, <laughs> okay? That's the older son. And then the Father, of course, is God. And in parables, uh, if you want to go back, and two weeks ago I talked about how do we interpret the parables and understand the parables, and I believe that uh, the parables aren't just teaching one point, though they might have one main point. They're usually teaching multiple points, and so I think in this story we will see that this parable teaches three main lessons, one per character. One for the prodigal, younger son, one for the older son, and even one for the father. Okay? So I want you to be kind of thinking and asking yourself as we go through this parable, which of these characters do you most relate to and identify with both now and maybe in the past? Which of these characters? Okay, so let's get going. Verse 12. 
So let's start at the beginning. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and his younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. What's going on here? Give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now, you've got to understand, if you were a first century Jewish, Jewish son, and you dared to ask your father for the share of your inheritance, which since he's the younger son, is probably about one-third of all that his father owned, his older son uh, getting two-thirds. If you were asked this question, this is basically like wishing your father to be dead. If you're going to understand when it, when it hits the ear, who does this? Nobody does this. This is so disrespectful, and this is a disgraceful request. Wishing that his father were dead. It's shocking. Give it to me now. I want my inheritance right now. Let's press pause for a sec. This is a great definition of sin. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Well, what what is sin? It's a great definition of sin, which is basically this. Taking for myself the promises of God, my inheritance from God, in my own timing. It's a great definition of what sin is. It's not that God wants to keep good things from us indefinitely. It's that He wants us to wait for His perfect good timing. And sin comes when we try to acquire our inheritance, the promises of God in our own timing. And here's the scariest part. This parable teaches us that the Father will give us what we ask for. You say, why should I wait to have sex? It ain't because it's a bad thing that God's created. It's a great thing. But He says, do it in my timing. And every time we say, I'll take it now, And the scary thing is God gives it to us. And we might destroy ourselves. Scary part of this uh, parable. The father gives him his request even though it's dishonorable and disgraceful. Verse 13. Not many... uh, So, uh, last half of 12. And he, that's the father, divided the property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country country where he squandered his property in reckless living. So here's basically what happened. He probably was given land and and cattle and and, and other things, uh, maybe maybe even some, some buildings, and he sold them all off. He cashed out. He packed up his bags, and he heads out into a far country, which means he's heading out into a Gentile country. So he's saying, I want to get away not only from my family, but away from my people, the Jews, into the Gentile country. And, and for the Jews listening to this, they would have been like, wow, he really hates his family. He really hates our people. And he's going into a far country. And he squanders his property, property on reckless living. And it, it doesn't give us details here. I think purposefully. But you can imagine how he's done that. And it doesn't, we don't know how long it takes him to squander, but we know that he squanders all that God, or all that the Father has given him. All that the Father has given him. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, a Gentile. He's now the employee, the bond servant of a Gentile. And the Gentile sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one would give him anything. You've got to put yourself into this story. I mean, for the Jewish audience... There would have been a mixture of laughter and revulsion at what's happened to this young man, given so much by his father, squandering it, living and now working for a Gentile, now working with pigs, which to the Jews were the most unclean of animals, the most disgraceful thing he could be doing. And so they would have have chuckled, and then they would have been like, this is intense, and he's now begging for food, and nobody will give him anything. 
He wishes he were a pig. Wow. Look at verse 17. He's in the lowest of the low place. And look what happens. But when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. This, this little phrase, he came to himself, it's basically saying he came to his senses. And what did his senses tell him? My father. I have a father, and he has so much, and I'm here with nothing. He remembers who he was, and he remembers who his father was. He's come to his senses. Now some scholars would question, is it in this moment that he repents of his sin, or is it in this moment that he's just looking out for himself? So, so, so some would say, is his motivation right for his return that we're about to see happen? Is his motivation right? Or is it in his desperation and his selfish desire for warmth and care and food that he returns to the Father? Is it in our desperation, in our brokenness, and our wanting that we return back to God? And here's my answer. Who cares? God doesn't care. The Father doesn't care. He doesn't care why we're returning. He's just glad that we're returning. Two points I want to make here. One is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ never, never teaches that you must restore yourself in order to return. It's the opposite. It's that only by returning to God can we begin the process of restoration. You see that? Never does it teach the opposite. Number two is this, even though our motivation to return might start with a sort of selfishness, I'm broken, I'm hurting, I need help, That doesn't matter because when we encounter the grace of God, the grace of the Father, the lesser motivation is transformed by that grace into a fuller, more uh, complete motivation, which is our mutual love and wonder for the God who would take us back. So no matter why it starts, who cares? As long as we're turning home, eventually we're met with an honest recognition of our sin and our true desire to work towards turning away from that sin, then we're on the right path. And there's so many implications to this because so often I hear this from critics of Christianity. They say something like this. They say the only reason people go to church, the only reason that people become Christians is because they're broken and they want to get fixed and they want healing. Should we deny that? Absolutely not. That's actually the perfect beginning (laughs) to proper Restoration and salvation, it always begins with wanting and seeking that brokenness to be reversed. So the critics never ask this fair follow-up question, and I would challenge them to do this. How, then, can you account for the people who were once broken that have now found healing sticking around even after they're back on their own feet? Many come because they're broken and needing of something from God, but then they stay long after that need is met. Why? Because they've encountered the grace of God, and they realize that it's not just for healing, it's for everything. It's for every part of life, every moment of life, every high, every low, every season, Every hour, the grace of God remains on us, and so it's not just for healing, though it does that, it's for everything. And that's why people stick around. A great question to ponder. Now, let's read verse 18. He's realized that he's blown it, he's realized, he's remembered who the Father is, he knows that he's in need, he knows that the Father has bread. Verse 18, he rehearses his speech. And this is a great template for repentance. You say, what does repentance look like? This is a great template right here. He says this, verse 18, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I know that I've broken the laws of your holy kingdom. Got to recognize it and proclaim it. And I know that I've sinned against you. God is a personal God. We must recognize that we've sinned against a personal God. We've sinned against him personally. Then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You recognize that you've lost your birthright and all the inheritance that comes on. It's gone. Recognize it. Then, you treat, uh, then it says this, treat me as your hired servant. Recognize, this is all part of repentance, that you deserve no preferential treatment. You've lost any rights. And then look what he did. And he arose and came to his father. Isn't that funny? There's nothing in there about, and then I started to get myself better. It's all negative, 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 negative. But yet, he arose and went to his father. This is also very important about the process of repentance, which is this, that you have an authentic desire to be nearer to God. And because of your authentic desire to be nearer of God, you, you take a real step, a real action step towards God, towards making the nearness happen. It's a great model, a great template for repentance. So the stage is set. The son is realized. He's in his heart repenting, in his words and his actions repenting, and he's moving towards the father. But now put yourself in the moment if you've never heard this parable and you're like, I have no idea how the father will react. And particularly if you were a Jew in the first century and you knew the Old Testament law as well as they did, here's what you would be thinking. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 says this. Basically, and I, I paraphrase, if a son or a daughter is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to respond to your discipline, they are guilty by punishment of death. This is what you grew up with. This is what you'd been told about a rebellious and stubborn son. Put yourself in those shoes and you have no idea what's going to happen next. All you know is he's heading back He's truly repenting in his heart, but you don't know what's about to happen. Put yourself in those shoes, and then let's read verse 20. It says this. So he arose, and he came to his father. Look at this. It's so great. You've got to see this word, but, is almost jumping off the page. But, while he was still a long way off, in the distance, his father saw him and felt compassion, and here's that idea we talked about last week, was moved by compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If you don't have goosebumps right now, it's because you don't understand what this would have felt like to the people hearing this story. What? He deserves the death penalty by stoning, and the father not only receives him back, but he runs halfway to meet him. If you were a respectable first century Jewish father, you would never have done this. You would never have run out to meet your son. Actually, what you would have done is you would have put him through, if you were going to take him back, a rigorous process of repentance and penance. You would have made him work for it. You would have shunned him for a time. Couldn't be farther from what the father does. He runs out and meets him. You've got to understand that this would have been humiliating, in a sense, to the father amongst all of his peers. So there's two parts of, of the prodigal that are so profound that we've got to understand. There's mercy and there's grace. They're two sides of the same coin, but they're not the same thing. What's the difference? Mercy means this, not getting something negative that you actually deserve, which is stoning to death for being rebellious. Grace is getting something good that you did not earn. So the first thing we see is mercy. Oh, the mercy. Look at verse 21. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but... you got to see it again. He doesn't finish, does he? Because if you look at the things he had rehearsed, he says even more. But the father stops him <laughs> right in the middle. He interrupts him and he says this. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe. you got to understand what this is trying to say. The son can't even finish his speech. He's like, you had me at hello. It's like a marriage proposal. You get down on one knee and the woman doesn't hear anything that you say. And if you accidentally went to your knee because your shoe was untied and she's thinking you're going to propose but you're really going to ask her if she'll do your laundry, you're screwed. You just got to ask her <laughs> because she's already said yes. <laughs> the father doesn't even let him finish. He's not even listening. He's just so happy to see his son. And he knows He's moved by compassion. He knows that his son has a true heart of contrition. It's not about the words you say. It's not about saying them right or perfectly or even repeating the speech just like you practiced. It's about your heart. Is your heart contrite? Are you sorry for turning and rebelling against God the Father? He doesn't care how you say it. He's so glad you're coming home. If you don't love the Word of God, just read this parable over and over and over again. So God's mercy, His mercy fears no dishonor. He doesn't mind interrupting His son's speech and not even letting him display the fullness of his repentance and his sorrow. He just interrupts him. He doesn't mind running out and embarrassing himself in front of all that see all of His servants seeing, seeing Him do this showing sort of his soft side. He doesn't care, because mercy fears no disgrace. True love fears no dishonor. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly his best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger, representing he now has authority as a son again. And shoes on his feet and bring a fattened calf, which would have been the most expensive um, piece of food that they could possibly cook and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Here's the picture of grace. Mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, which is either death or a long series of penance to earn your way back into my favor. That's the mercy. And then here's grace. I'm going to shower you with gifts that you did not earn. God's grace is so amazing. God's grace is waiting for us eagerly. How did he see his son so far off? Because he's waiting every day, hoping that he'll come back. And we don't know how many years he waited. He's waiting for you. God's grace is waiting for you. God's grace is not measured. Meaning you don't, get, you don't have to work your way out of the debt that you've created. There's no purgatory here. There's no paying for your sins. It's wiped away instantaneously. That's what grace is. God's grace turns shame into celebration. And celebration is the resurrection. You see that? He was dead, and he's alive again. Resurrection and celebration are so tightly knit. We must be a community that celebrates because we're a community that was dead and we're alive again. This is always the gospel of grace. It always turns shame into celebration. Mary Magdalene, do you know who that is? Mary Magdalene, she was steeped in the shame of prostitution until she met Jesus. And then she was restored by grace and is now celebrated as the first female disciple of Jesus. Shame to celebration. Peter, the great apostle, you know what? He was covered in shame because three times when Jesus was arrested, he denied publicly that he even knew him. 
But by grace, he was restored, and now he's celebrated as the lead pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. We all know about Peter. Then there's Paul. The shame of being known as a murderer of Christians. He literally went around murdering anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. But you know what? He was restored by grace. And now he's celebrated as the evangelist to the Gentiles. But of course, as with all things, Jesus himself proves the truth. Shamed by the greatest of dishonors, humiliated by being put to death on a cross, which for a Jew was the ultimate humiliation as he died hanging on a tree, but he's restored by the Father's grace, brought back to life, and now he's worshipped as the resurrected Son of God, the Savior of all people, and whose name will be celebrated above all names for eternity. Shame to celebration. That's the gospel of grace. And you see it right here in this famous parable, the first half of the parable of the good or of uh, the prodigal son. So before we move to the second brother, which is probably even more important, let me just say this. I never understood this parable as I do right now in my life. And what's changed? I've read it so many times. I've heard it so many times. I've heard it preached on. Because I could never understand the father's forgiveness of this rebellious son who's dishonored him and disrespected him in every way. Basically spit in his face. I couldn't understand it. That kind of mercy, that kind of grace, it was just kind of beyond me until something happened. I became a human father. Just today, Grayson like attacked me and literally put his whole mouth around my nose and bit. And he's got about eight teeth now. And he sharpens them on wood <laughs> every day. <laughs> and I, was, I, I literally thought he might have bit it off. <laughs> but I was thinking to myself, there's nothing that he could do. Nothing he could do. No way he could dishonor me. No way he could disrespect me. There's nothing he could do. He could be away for years and years and years he could blog about me and how much he hated me, and if he came home, I would run to him. And I never got it. I never got the parable until I had a son of my own, and I realized this is why God calls himself Father. I mean, my heart literally hurts sometimes, and I like lose my breath when I look at him, and I'm like, what is going on to me? I can't even speak. What's happening? That's how much God loves you. That's how much he wants you to come home to him. Oh, so easy to just breeze by that. But there's another story, another brother, and we must wrestle with this as much as we wrestle with the first. Verse 25. Now these, uh, his older son was in the field and he also came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing because they were celebrating. The younger son. Why was he in the field? What was he doing? He was working his buns off. The older brother was a hard worker. He was diligent. He did everything that he thought the father wanted him to do. He was caring for this inheritance that he too had been given early, and he was working hard. You see this? I feel this. Who's working so hard and he hears the music of the celebration and look what he does. Verse 26, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. Don't lose this. Why did he call to the servant? Why didn't he just go ask his parents himself? Which is so important to the story. He was geographically close to his family, yet he was so distant and disconnected from his family, from his dad, that he didn't even go ask him himself what was going on. He asked a servant to tell him, because the servant was more connected than he was. How sad is that? 
He was so close, yet so far away. Verse 27. And he said to him, that's the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was receive, uh, because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28. But the older brother was angry and he refused to go in. He was, the kind of anger that he had was serious anger. And we'll see as the parable goes, he can't even bring himself to call his brother his brother. He calls him this son of yours. The disgust, the anger is real. Second half of verse 28. But what? His father came out and entreated him. Now, you might not know what entreated means. It doesn't mean scolded. It means urged, pleaded with him. Come into the party. Celebrate with us. Eat and drink with us. Eat of the fattened calf. Sing and dance with us. And you know what? The father didn't sit in the house and wait till the son came. You know what he did? He went out to him. This is so important. For both sons, the father goes out and meets them halfway. This is so important. What he does for one, he does for the other. There's a different kind of lostness, but they're both lost. But the father's mercy and grace operates the same. He meets them where they're at. He goes out to them, and he pleads with them, come back in. Put your anger to rest Come, celebrate with the family. But he won't do it. Verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Never gave me a fattened calf that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. The older son, if you didn't pick it up, has completely lost his identity. He basically says what? I have been your servant for all these years. Some translations say slaving for you. He's began to see himself not as a son, but as a servant, as a slave of the father. The older son lost his identity as a son, not by reckless living like the younger son, but by begrudging labor right here at home. Look what the father says to him, though. Look what he says to him. Oh, this is good. And verse 31. And he, that's the father, said to him, the son, the older son. Look at him. Look at his first word. It's so powerful. Son. Son. You are always with me. You are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You're my son. Why are you referring to yourself like a servant? You're my son, and you've always been my son. And the dad says this. It was fitting to celebrate your younger brother and be glad. For this, your brother, you just called him this son of yours, your brother was dead And is alive. He was lost and is found. A few points quickly about the older brother. You see how he measured his father's love? He measured it by this fattened calf. Who decides what love is worth? Is only a fattened calf equal to love? Man, we do this all the time. 
Comparison, you've probably heard this, comparison is the thief of joy. He ignores all that he has, all that he's been given, because he's only looking at someone else's stuff. Comparison will steal your joy. Anytime we say, if you really love me, you'll do this, or you'll give me this, then we've just made ourselves unlovable. Second point I'd like to make here. The older brother. Our tendency is to build a case against those around us. You see what he does? He accuses his brother of spending money and he gets very specific on prostitutes. Did we see that earlier in the story? How did he know that? He didn't know that. He was just assuming. Now he might have been right, but this is always our tendency is we want to get very specific about the sins of others. We want to get very specific and we want to exaggerate their rebellion. At the same time, we want to exaggerate our obedience. Because did you see what he said? Look back, look back. Where does he say this? <laughs> I, uh, verse 29. This is so important. Underline this in your Bible. I never disobeyed your command. You think that's true? See the irony here? You never disobeyed my command? I'm asking you to come into the party and you're not doing it. You're disobeying me right now. Stop exaggerating your obedience. You're exaggerating his sin and you're exaggerating your obedience. We all forget how bad and wicked we are. We love to talk about how bad everyone else is. If you're the older brother. Now here's the great truth. Even if you exaggerate the sin of others, and even if you exaggerate your goodness, your righteousness, you know what? You still get the mercy and grace of the Father. I love that. Don't get caught up. Don't get so focused on justice and equality that you miss out on joy. Don't get caught up in that. Focus on celebration. The two stories that came before. Look at verse 7 with me very quickly. The story of the lost sheep. And it gets to the end and they find it. And just so, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now look at verse 10. The parable of the lost coin says this, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The point is this. Don't miss out on joy because you're so busy judging. Have joy and celebrate when anyone comes home. When anyone returns to the Father. Hmm. We all need grace, brothers and sisters. We all need grace. No one is righteous. No, not one. And here's my worry that, at, that, that, that we hear this and at some point we remember or we, we, at some point we were all the younger brother. We were all the prodigal. We were all lost and dead in our sin until we came home to the Father and he opened His arms with grace and mercy and He received us in and the angels celebrated. We were all the prodigal. But now we've been home for a while and I fear, oh, I fear that we've forgotten that we once were the younger brother. And I fear that we've become the older brother. And we forget about the grace God showed to us so we can't see how important that is when a brother comes home or a sister comes home after many years away, after many years of rebelling against God, after many, many, many instances of disgraceful behavior, when they come home, we celebrate. We celebrate. Oh, that we would be a church, not of the older brother, but a church of the Father. The main point in this parable 
Remember I said, who do you most see yourself in, the younger or the older? Here's the great news. The main point of this parable is that we have the opportunity to choose to be like the Father and rejoice at the salvation of others. Can we do that? Will we do that together? Let me just offer an open invitation here. It's very interesting how this parable ends. We don't know what happens to the older brother, do we? It just ends. (laughs) Why does it just end? Because the invitation remains open to the older brother and to anyone who sees themselves as the younger brother. It's an open invitation. What are we going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? The doors to heaven are open to you. Whether you're the rebellious wanderer or you're the hyper-religious, the invitation is open. Mercy and grace is how God the Father acts towards us. It's not earned, it's given. And if we misunderstand grace, it's either going to keep us distant from God, living somewhere far off in another country, or distant from God, living in the same house as Him, but always far in our own heart. Whichever son you are, or daughter, Come home, sit at the table of God, eat and drink with his children, sing and dance and celebrate that once we were all dead and now we live. Let's pray. Father, we, we cry out to you. And we say thank you. I don't know the condition of every heart in the room, but we we hope that we see this picture that you've painted for us through this amazing parable, this story that Jesus told, and we see ourselves. We see ourselves either in a far country or right at home missing out on your grace and your mercy and your love, and we're not a part of the celebration because we have not accepted your free gift of grace. Help us to know we cannot earn it. Like the older brother, we cannot work our way to your love. You call us son or daughter already. Open our hearts, open our minds to see the joy. The joy of life that you offer in Jesus. Amen.